Good morning. My name is Dave Foster, and we are happy that you're here with us this morning. Whether you're watching at home or you're here in person, it's good when uh, God's people get together and open the Word and see what He has to say. Uh, as you've been with us for the last few weeks, you know that we are making our way through the epistle of 1 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul is writing this book, uh, trying to deal with some of the issues that seem to be uh, plaguing the church at Corinth. Travel being what it was back in Paul's day, no social media, no cell phones, communication was uh, understandably difficult. And so Paul is resorting to writing to them after receiving several reports of uh, major issues that were going on in the church of Corinth. And I think we've covered those uh, in the past few weeks. But as I think about this, um, I was talking to my wife earlier this week and just kind of walking through chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. And it, it hits me that, uh, you know, we're all familiar with the pandemic. We've all seen images of the coronavirus, you know, this circle with all these little spiky things sticking out of it, you know, that connect and invade uh, healthy cells. Um, I think Paul is somewhat dealing with that situation. Uh, the way that Paul puts it as he walks through this epistle, this note, is that we are born into sin. God's people, as we gather together, uh, realize that the world that we live in and the place that we come from is a place of imperfection, a place with serious issues, serious problems. It's somewhat like, let's just say the pandemic was the given rather than the exception. Uh, instead of being an invading cell, uh, the pandemic is just the way it is. And what happens, what happened, is that in truth, Christ was the invading cell. When Christ came, when he was incarnate, uh, and he became a man. God became a man. He brought a unique virus, if you will, into our world. And as people, as individuals come to Christ, their whole DNA is transformed. The way they see the world, the way they behave, the way they uh, have a new commission, a new purpose for their life, it changes so in this field of virus comes this invading agent, Christ himself. And it operates on two levels, Paul tells us in this epistle. One, for the individual. When I first come to faith in Christ, uh, something transforms in me, right? And it transformed in you as well, if you know Jesus as your Savior. What you once were, you are no longer. And it, it, it takes time. It's a process. As we preached a few months ago through sanctification, we understand that it takes time for that to happen to its fullness. There is no such thing as being sort of infected with Christ. You're fully infected. You're fully changed. Uh, there seems to be a problem, though, in this church. 
that doesn't seem to be taking place because that's the second way that this virus of Christ comes into this world. It's not only individually, but also corporately. It should be transforming people as a group. So when these individual Christians come together and they do things together, such as they share the word of God, uh, just like we're talking about next week, there's baptism, we partake of the Lord's table, we encourage one another, we sing hymns of praise to our Father. We are the church. And it's the blood of Christ that act on the cross that makes us unique to the rest of the world. It's when we identify together as Christians, as people who are followers of Christ, that the greatest change takes, takes place, that it happens. And that's really Paul's whole problem as he looks at the church at Corinth. We started off uh, back in chapter 1 and 2, and we're looking at it, and Paul is saying, I have this against you. There are divisions. There are separations. There are factions. And going back to our uh, pandemic illustration, how can there be divisions within this cell that gives life, that gives liberty, that changes us for the good, removes our hatred, removes all those things that kept us apart. But Paul says, nevertheless, that is the case with you. And then Paul moved on uh, to chapter 5. We saw that last week where he says, there is sexual immorality among you. How can that be? The question is asked again. How is that possible that you are still living like you used to live? There is a cure. And today we roll into chapter 6. And Paul once again rolls out his concern. He has another issue for this church. And as Paul does this throughout this book, he is encouraging his people to think about it. First as an individual. What am, what, what's going on in my life? How can I have come to Christ and receive the greatest gift that there is, which is redemption, salvation? Believing that the atoning work of Christ on that cross has changed me forever. And how can we come together as the people of God and still have these kind of issues happening? And Paul is very frustrated. He's very frustrated. Remember back in chapter 5, how that, appen, that, that opens where it says, it is actually reported. It's an emphatic statement. It's a unique structure of Paul using his language to say to the people, I can't believe it. If it hadn't been told to me, I wouldn't believe it. But I do know that it's true. There is sexual immorality amongst you. And then he goes on to uh, explain, of course, that this is a man, there's someone in the church, possibly a wealthy person, possibly a powerful person, someone who maybe was leading one of those factions of the church who was sleeping with his father's wife. And we explored how that was probably an incestuous relationship with the stepmother. And we went on from there in talking about how Paul was trying to get these people to understand that cannot be the case. We cannot live like we once lived. 
And so when we get to chapter 6, Paul again uses strong language to emphasize what the problem is. Let's read, uh, starting in verse 1. We're going to read 1 through 6 together this morning. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. How dare you, Paul says. I can't believe this. Here's one other issue that this church seems to be struggling with. When one of you has a grievance, a civil case, uh, something that they felt warranted invoking the courts, you take a brother before the law. How dare you do this? Paul trying to use everything he has in his vocabulary arsenal to get their attention. Don't do this. How dare you do this instead of the saints? You see, in Paul's day, the courts were a little different than they are today. I hope they were different because they were tilted to being in favor of those who were rich and powerful. The rich and powerful could afford attorneys. Uh, Dio Chrysotom writes, there were so many lawyers in Corinth. They stood on the street corners begging for business. And the reason that they were so popular was that others could take, enroll them, hire them, and say, hey, go to court and see if you can win this issue for me. It was a common means by which people who had money enslaved and put into bondage those who did not. This is the way that they achieve status in Greek society. Remember that Paul has been saying all along that the church at Corinth is too much like the Corinthians that surround them. They think of themselves as being wise. They think of themselves as being smart, clever. Too smart, too clever, and certainly not wise is the truth. But Paul says that's what they thought of themselves. And Paul is constantly having to remind them, you're not that wise. Only Jesus is wise, right? But nevertheless, they would invoke the courts to get what they wanted. And in this case, in the church of Corinth, even though that was the practice by the people who lived in their city, the church should not be participating in that. And Paul says, how dare you do this? How dare you enlist an attorney? How dare you, those of you who are wealthy, seek to take advantage of those in the church who are not wealthy? Why do you continue to do these things? It's not right. He says, we can handle this. Instead, you should have gone to the saints. In other words, you have a grievance against a brother or sister in Christ. Don't take that to the courts. Instead, bring that to the church. 
there should be somebody among you that is wise enough to handle this dispute. And Paul makes some emphatic statements like, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And then again, he says that the saints will judge angels in verse 3. How much more than matters pertaining to this life? And those are, are, are kind of different phrases. I tried to find references to why Paul would say that uh, believers were going to judge angels. And it's possibly a reference back to Daniel chapter 7. Uh, it's possibly a look at where Christ tells his apostles that someday they will be judging the 12 tribes of Israel. But whatever it is, it's definitely a, an apocalyptic vi vision of the future where the saints will judge the world. That seems to be an understood idea for those who follow Christ. We will judge the world. Those who don't know Jesus, we will be in charge eventually when the world is remade. And that must include angels. And he says, so would you, who are going to judge angels, would you submit a matter to a non-believing judge or court for resolution? That makes no sense. We should trust one another. I got involved in this a little bit myself back in my previous church. I had a, a lady who was a phenomenal uh, horsewoman. She, she raised horses. She loved horses. If you go visit her place, she had mounds outside of her house where she buried horses. I mean, it was like a tombstone. It was uh, going back to seeing horses that she cherished and loved. Um, but she had a horse. She had a colt, actually. And it had been you know, sufficiently papered and so forth. It was a very, very valuable horse. And she sold it to a ranching family that was in our church. And this ranching family, on the day they picked it up, I'm not sure exactly what happened, but something happened where that colt got injured going into the horse trailer. Now, from the perspective of the lady uh, who owned that colt, the man was in a fury, he was losing his temper because of some other issues that had happened that day. And in putting that horse into the trailer, uh, he was too rough. And it injured the colt. But he didn't realize that until he got home. And when he got home and they unloaded that colt, he saw that it was not walking properly. In fact, it was damaged. And so all kinds of arguments were going back and forth. And of course, what happens in most churches happened there. People began to take sides. Well, I know this family. They've always been an honorable family. I'm sure he wouldn't lie about this situation. This must be something that uh, actually happened. And so we'll support him. And others were like, no, no, this woman loves her horses. She would never try to take advantage of someone by selling a defective colt. I have to admit, being a city boy, when it finally came in before me, that I was like a defective colt. You know, what, what do I know about horses? But Paul is saying that right here, that we can do this as saints. There should be someone wise enough to settle this before you. So they called me on the phone and they, they asked if I would listen to both sides and perhaps give an opinion to settle the matter. And it was my first opportunity to kind of mediate between believers. So we got together at the church, 
the, the woman presented her story, how she thought that it went. The guy presented his story. And then they stared at me like, what's the right way to go here, Dave? Now, despite my incompetence at knowing anything about agricultural matters in those days, uh, they expected me to give a, a verdict, if you will, a judgment that would settle this issue. And I did. I did the best that I could. And thus, they avoided going to court. The controversy was pretty much over. Everybody in the church kind of calmed down. But I take that as being a good, good way to handle things. This is what Paul means. We have no business going and filing suit against another believer in a court judged by unbelievers. We should have wisdom. This is what happened in the Old Testament, right? We see examples of this from time to time as we read through there. The elders sitting in the city gate were often asked to take a look at a situation and to judge what was right. You know, we look at the story of Ruth and Boaz is going to make a plea that he would have the ability to be the kinsman redeemer for Ruth. Even though the legal rights to Ruth, as they were in those days, was with a different kinsman. And it happened. We have that ability. The Holy Spirit fills us, and we, according to Paul, should be taking care of these issues as a church. How much more than matters pertaining to this life, so you have such cases, why do you lay them before people with no standing in the church? Last week we talked in chapter 5 about how the church had no business judging the things of the world. Paul says, I come not writing to you about the things of the world. If they want to participate in sexual immorality, if they want to do all the things that makes them happy in the church or in the city of Corinth, in the city of Ephesus, in Rome, what do we as believers have to say about that? But what we do have something to say about is what happens right here in the church. And now he is saying the same that it happens in courts can't happen any longer. It has to be brought home. Take it as strong advice. Do not bring each other before the courts. He doesn't tell us what the issue is. He doesn't tell us what had come up and what was the major issue before these brothers and sisters in Christ. He's just giving us a principle. Let's look at the next verse, verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a great defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Paul's arguments gets even stronger. Because the first thing that's going to come to our minds, right? Well, if I forsake going to court, if I don't take the legal path, and I leave it up to some yahoo in the church to judge this, such as me, won't I possibly be defrauded? Won't I lose financial gain that is rightfully mine? How am I to know that this man would judge in the right way? And Paul said, it's basically a matter of faith, right? This is a matter of the church. They can do that. 
we can settle issues before us. But what Paul now is going to argue is that even if you got a bad judgment, even if it doesn't go your way, and you lose out on that financial uh, advantage, that's better than ruining the reputation of the church by going to a court. That's better than ruining the reputation of an individual Christian by going to the courts. In my church, we had a couple of medical professionals, doctors, who got into an argument. Good men, great men, loved them both. And they decided that they could not handle things between the two of them. And it basically, the issue was there was an older doctor who brought in a younger doctor to take over his business. It was his desire that this younger doctor would, uh, as a Christian, be just like he had been and be one that would be a witness in the community and so forth. And he'd give him every advantage, hoping that this would be a smooth transition. Now, when that older doctor had first bought the clinic and the business from another doctor, he had been paid a large sum of money. And he said this was only right. And so part of their agreement was that the younger doctor would make sure that the older doctor was paid uh, the same amount of money that he had paid the other doctor. But when the time came, the younger doctor decided that that was not necessary. And man, did that cause problems. These are both beloved men in our church. Both of them are sincerely committed to the way of Christ. Both of them had taken active roles in ministry, in missions. There was nothing immoral about them. There was nothing that would give you an idea like, well, this person really isn't living for Christ. They both were phenomenal uh, believers as well as being doctors. So the church got involved. And I remember it, was, it didn't happen overnight, by the way. Not like the horse incident where it was one hearing and we were done. This went on for quite a period of time. Potentially causing division. Potentially causing great hurt. And we knew that we had to be careful. And I know in one of my emails to the older doctor, I said, it's true. You're owed this money in your mind. That this was the standard. This was the agreement to your contract. And every way, you probably should be paid this money. But let me ask you this. Are you willing to forsake that? The doctor looked at me as we got together later like, how can you ask me that? That's crazy. You know, and I looked at him and said, that's, that's what God's word says. Are you willing to forego what is your right, what is due to you, what is owed to you for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ? I said, think about the reputation. We lived in a small town. That is going to happen with you two at war with one another. Think about what you're doing to the church with people taking sides in this issue. Think about your standing before Christ as you could prepare to fight this battle through the pages of editorials in the newspaper, before the courts, and so forth. Are you willing to forego all of that for the sake of the gospel? for the sake of the image of the church. And to his credit and to my amazement and thankfulness, he looked at me and he said, yes, 
I am willing to forsake that. I don't know how it ended. I, I left that church before it actually came to a conclusion. But God has used both men mightily, and I know their hearts are such that they would echo these verses, verses 7 and 8. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? It doesn't have to be a major lawsuit. It doesn't have to involve hundreds of thousands of dollars. It can just be disputes between us as people. Someone greatly has hurt you. Someone has done something that you find very difficult to forgive. And forever, you've held strong feelings against that person. There's one thing I did learn about living in a small town. I'd never lived in a small town before. You know, I grew up in Omaha. We, I was born in San Francisco. I was in school in Dallas. And God led me to this small town, 3,800 people. And one thing I learned there is that generations of people can have hard feelings against each other, like the Hatfields and McCoys, but they don't even know why. It was a dispute that maybe happened generations ago. Real healing can take place. If you, hopefully both of you, but at least if one of you is willing to say, I'm going to take the high road here. I'm willing to be defrauded. I'm willing to go the route where I will not demand my rights. That's what Paul is saying. And why? What's the goal of this? It's so that the reputation of the church of Jesus Christ is intact. What is the world going to think looking from the outside in when believers are at war with one another, let alone taking each other to a civil court? But let's say it doesn't even get that far. What about it's happening right here? There are people that you would rather not see in the hallway. There are people that you refuse to have fellowship with because they drive you nuts. Paul says, it's not about your rights. I love this line. But you yourselves wrong and defraud. Each of us do this. Even your own brothers. We have to live above that. Remember that virus that comes into our life? That, that Christ determined, defined New cell, new power. God himself, Jesus Christ, made a man, according to Philippians 2, thinking it not wrong, right? Became a man and took upon himself the form of... You talk about fraud. You talk about injustice. How can the perfect man who lived the righteous life without sin, go to a cross, be cruelly killed, while you and I, who deserve such punishment, stand and look at him. And Paul's saying if that happened, if Jesus is willing to take uh, the wrongness of you with him to the cross, then how can you hold another brother or sister in Christ at fault? How can you insist that they be penalized? How can you insist that you profit from their misery? Be willing to be defrauded. Be willing to be wronged. Even if it costs you money. Even if it costs you your reputation. Ultimately, Jesus Christ will settle the issue. And that's the hope that we have. Paul doesn't come right out and say that here. 
But that is exactly what he's inferring. At some point, all justice will happen. Maybe just not in this life. He wanted the church at Corinth to understand that. Then he jumps into verse 9. And he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He said that back in chapter 5, didn't he? He says that quite often in this book. That the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You're not any longer the way that you were. Paul lists a whole bunch of things, uh, activities that can happen. Those are sins. And at one time, they dominated your life. But you're no longer those people. Quit living like them. Quit, Quit imitating them. This is not for you. Paul brings in strong words. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? When you take someone to court, you are putting yourself in that category with this long list of sins. You are imitating the world. You're not living like Christ. Strong, strong statement. Some of you saw me earlier today. I came up here with a backpack on. And that's kind of illustrating what I'm talking about, right? When you're a non-Christian, all of us, before the cross, before we experienced Jesus, we were carrying a weight on our backs, a weight of sin. In my case, it was such anger. It was such frustration. I, I hurt people. I hurt people that I cared a lot about. I got kicked out of school twice my sophomore year for fighting. It was just a fury of a temper. It was so heavy, and I didn't know what to do about it. My younger brother, Dean, confronted me so so many times. And my usual response to him was to threaten him. And if that didn't work, I would probably hurt him. I didn't know what else to do. But then the day came, and if I shared with this with you before, where he came back from a camp and he told me the story of Jesus. And he just asked me this simple question. Would you like God to be your best friend? And I'm like, man, every friend I've ever had has betrayed me, has turned his back on me. Probably a good reason. But in my self-centeredness, I couldn't see it. I just knew that I hated the world. It had been just a few months earlier that I had walked out of school and I shook my fist at heaven. I said, all right, God, it's me against you. You've made my life miserable. And I want nothing to do with you. And how ironic. God's response to me was not a lightning bolt. I didn't get hit by a car. He sent his his servant, my brother, to me with the the message of eternal life. And so I said to my brother, yeah, I want to have God as my friend. Jesus can be that guy. I didn't know a lot of theology. 
I didn't understand what Paul is saying here about being washed, being sanctified, being justified. I wasn't on that side of the cross yet. I was on this side. And as I looked at that cross that my brother was telling me about, all I could think of is why. Why would he do this for me? And the second thought I had was, whoa, if he's willing, so am I. How dare I turn this down? So we prayed right there in my living room. And I often say this when I give my testimony. I felt this backpack, this weight, slide off my back. The anger dissipated. The Holy Spirit filled my breasts. It was like a great relief. There was no doubt something had happened to me that had never happened before. When I got up off my knees, I told my brother, first thing I told him was, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the many ways that I had been selfish. I'm sorry for the many ways that I hurt you. I'm sorry for the many ways in which I lived my life totally self-centered and made my life so, so ugly. And my brother told me that he forgave me too. And we ran in to tell my mom. We woke her up. She'd been in bed. We said, guess what? We've become Christians. And my mom was like, that's great. That's nice, honey. You know, I'm a Christian too. Well, it would take several years for the truth of the gospel to come into her heart. And she eventually did accept Christ. But that was before the cross in my life. After the cross, my life was totally different. God came in, changed things move things, and all of a sudden I had a purpose for living. I had a life. Now, what would happen if I would go back after experiencing this kind of salvation, this freedom, and I would say, you know what? I really miss the weight of my previous life. I really miss that backpack full of sin. Oh, that'd be so great. To have that. You see, the, the Israelites, didn't they do that? When God had led them out in Moses' day from Egypt, and they crossed the Red Sea, and they saw miracle after miracle through the ten plagues, and they saw the Red Sea divided, and they saw the pillar of cloud uh, by day and the pillar of fire by night. And still, after a while, they were like, wow, if we could just go back to Egypt, if we just could go back to those days, life was so simple. So easy. No wonder God's wrath jumped out at them. But we kind of do the same thing in the church. We're believers. It happened. I came to that moment where I was at the cross and I lost that heavy burden. And the burden of my sins slid away. But then what we do is after a while... We start thinking, man, I would love, I would feel more comfortable, maybe better said, to start carrying that burden again. I'm going to see what living sexually really means. How many young Christian men have I seen go through high school with their families who are strong believers, and they're thinking, I've never gotten to have fun. I talked to a young man one time, he said, yeah, I went to the University of Iowa, but I was living at home, and I went to classes during the day, but I never got a chance to have that, uh, 
college experience. What did he mean by that? I've heard that in similar ways through the years. Well, what they meant was college is supposed to be fun. Fun, i.e. sinful, sexually active, getting drunk, rebelling against authority, having a new worldview, all those things. And so what he was really saying was, can I go back before the cross and can I pick up stuff, stuff that I really want to be involved with, stuff that I think might be fun? And those of us who live that life, even more judgment upon us, if we experience the freedom of those things and we go back and we pick up those weights and we put them back on our shoulder. You see, that's what's besieging the church at Corinth. They had experienced the cross, but now they are going back and picking stuff up. Paul says at one point, as we had read, they couldn't handle the meat of the word. They could only handle the milk. They didn't want to be in deep Bible study. They didn't want to be in prayer. They didn't want to be in the fellowship of the saints and hear sermons that would convict them and turn their hearts even deeper towards Christ. They thought they could have both worlds, before the cross and after the cross. And the truth is, you can't. Paul's trying to be as strong as he can in his language here. You can't do that. It's not allowed. It makes what Christ did on the cross cheap, inconsequential, invaluable, or valueless, I should say. Get rid of it. So what do we do? Well, if we find ourselves in that situation this morning, if we recognize that, yeah, I've brought some of that pre-cross days into my new Christian life. I didn't mean to. It started gradually, but now it's picked up such strength that I sometimes feel like I'm still in bondage to those sins. How do I get rid of this? I knew originally I just had to ask Jesus into my life, but now what do I do with this sin? And I just encourage you today, what you need to do is just take it off and then bring out each sin and lay it at the cross, at the foot of the cross. Say, God, forgive me for my anger. God, forgive me for my pornography addiction. God, please forgive me for the way that I have cheated on my wife or my husband. I don't want to live this way any longer. Paul lists this litany of sins there from verses 9 to 11. I'm not going to be a reviler. I'm not going to be a drunkard. I'm not going to be a swindler. I'm just not going to do it because I want the freedom of living my salvation out in its fullness, in its power. I'm encouraging you this morning, wherever you find yourself, unpack your bag. Unpack your backpack. Take that weight off of your back so that you know what it means to be free in Christ. So the testimony of Jesus, the strength of the church, in your health as a Christian, as an individual, are foremost in your mind. And if you can't do this on your own, and many of us can't, then come and find somebody. Come find one of us to help, to walk that journey with you. We're here for you. We understand. We care.
we're facing some tremendous challenges as a church, both locally, but also in this nation. We need to have a church that's turned on for Christ, that's pure in its walk with Christ, that is free from divisions, that's free from sexual immorality. Everybody has to make that effort. That's my prayer for us today. Unpack your bag before the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and for your mercy. I thank you for your love. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to free ourselves of those things in our life which impede our walk with you. Father, if Paul was alive today, how would he write a letter to us? Would it be one of saying, well done, you're so faithful? Or would he be just like with the church at Corinth saying, I have this against you. It has been said about you that there is this and this and this. And Lord, we don't want that. So I pray for each brother and sister in Christ that are listening at home or are sitting here this morning that we would be free from those things which, care, which create a great weight in our heart. Give us that freedom, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much, Dave.